Welcome to Mrs. Flick's Picks, where busy moms can find the best books for their kids. Join me in my mission to cultivate children's moral imagination through good stories, beautifully written. Well, hello and welcome back to Mrs. Flick's Picks. I am Carrie Flick and I am just thrilled to be back with you all for season two. We have got a lot of really, really good books that I'm so excited to get into over the next several weeks. And I wanted to let you guys know this is so exciting. A couple of weeks ago, this podcast reached just over a thousand downloads and we have listeners all over the USA. We have listeners in Germany, France, India, uh, Japan. This has just really blown up and I am so, so excited and so humble and grateful for all of your love and support. And I hope to continue to, um, to bring you some really, really great picks for your entire family. Well, my family uh, was on vacation just a couple weeks ago and it was kind of a long car drive. So we decided to cave and let the kids watch a movie to kill some of the, the driving time. And the movie that they picked was Walt Disney's um, Swiss Family Robinson, which was released in 1960, I believe. And the whole time the kids are watching that movie, which we've seen several times before, but I was thinking to myself, man, I just love vintage Disney. I mean, he was just so good. And I'm about to give some of you heart attacks when I say this, but Disney was like Shakespeare in regards to his production plots. Shakespeare's plays were, with one exception, never original stories, and Disney was very similar. Of course, we're all familiar with Snow White and the other fairy tales, but I thought it would be fun to do an episode focusing on some of the lesser-known or lesser-read books that Disney has made so incredibly popular. I would say that in all three of the cases I'm discussing today, the movies were so popular that they left the original books to be long neglected, if not entirely forgotten. But I promise that each of these three deserve to have a well-loved spot on your shelf for the entire family. Now, I'm assuming that you've already seen these films, so I'm not going to go into the plots of the books unless there is a significant deviation. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right on in. All right, my first pick for you today is Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. This is an unusual book in many ways. It originated as a play authored by Barry, which premiered in 1904, and it was wildly successful. But Barry continued to edit the script for years. In 1911, he combined the play script and then bits of other stories he had previously written, for adults, by the way, about Peter Pan, and published that product as one cohesive novel. Walt Disney released his version of the story in 1953, and while he kept the basic characters and storyline, he really made it a different type of story, focusing on childhood play and harmless adventure. 
Although this was an original story by James Barry, it has largely taken on the sense of a long-established cultural fairy tale. Thanks to Disney's genius powerhouse, the picture of a preteen boy in green tights and leaf tunic is iconic and instantly recognizable. But the novel is so rich in not just its language and imagery, but also in its psychology and the picture it offers of childhood, both its loveliness and its cruelty. I often talk about cultivating children's moral imagination, and Peter Pan is the perfect portrait of what happens when a child has abundant imagination, but no sense of morality outside himself. The original subtitle to Barry's play was The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, but one of the proposed subtitles was The Boy Who Hated Mothers. Both of these help us to grasp Peter's character. He's extremely selfish in that he simply only thinks of himself. He is vain and conceited, always needing to be the center of attention and in charge of everything. He loves stories but most especially stories about himself and his daring exploits. Peter does have virtues. He is brave and shrewd. He has a deep sense of honor and justice. And his imagination is so powerful that it creates an alternate reality for him. But he exhibits these virtues only as they serve himself. Without humility kindness, generosity, and patience, he is spiritually deformed. He proudly declares his hatred for mothers and adulthood and refuses to accept his obligation to grow and mature. So Peter is like a temperamental toddler in a boy's body. Barry, at one point, described him as betwixt and between. He was born a human boy, but is now something not quite human and not quite fairy. He is something in between those. So when you're reading this aloud to your kids and you think to yourself, good grief, I'm not sure Peter is such a good guy. That's exactly Barry's view of him. He isn't. When someone refuses to accept the boundaries and the responsibilities both God and society have placed upon them, they will always have a significant deformity to their character. Even the Neverland reflects this idea. Because the Neverland is made up of children's imagination, it is simultaneously a beautiful and a terrifying place. Fairies are real, and flying is possible, but pirates are real too, and sudden death, violent death, is just as possible. This book is a bit challenging as a read aloud, but you should absolutely tackle it. The story is so rich and full that you can get away with reading only small bites at a time, maybe half a chapter in one sitting, and it would really be entertaining for all the family together, from six-year-olds to 60-year-olds. My next pick is one of my absolute favorite Disney animated films, and that is 101 Dalmatians. Many people may be surprised that this story started out as a children's novel written by Dodie Smith. And I have to say, Disney did an excellent job at remaining true to the story while making some significant changes that really worked much better for an animated film. 
but the book has so much more story to offer. The father and mother Dalmatian, who in the book are named Pongo and Mrs., are really developed, but in a very doggy way. You find them believable and relatable on many levels, yet the reader never forgets that they are very much dogs and not humans. There are several different dog characters featured throughout the book, and I found it entertaining to see how different breeds manifested their personalities. Pongo, the father, is extraordinarily intelligent and is determined to save his family, regardless of the cost to himself. He encourages his wife, but also leads her and even occasionally reprimands her when necessary, although always lovingly. Mrs. Pongo is not nearly as academically intelligent as her husband, but she's incredibly intuitive and devoted to Pongo. She is capable of doing truly great things solely because of the love of her family that drives her. Their journey to find their stolen puppies is quite an adventure of itself, and their interaction is a touching picture of the strength of a unified mother and father. Another aspect of the novel that is so powerful is the ending concerning Cruella de Vil. In the movie, if you recall, Cruella does not succeed in getting the puppies back, and she totals her car in a horrible crash. However, in the book, there is both significant justice paid out to Cruella and a redemption arc. I'm about to give some spoilers here. In the book, the Dalmatians gain access to Cruella's house and completely destroy all of her luxurious fur coats. I mean, they tear them to pieces. Not content with that, they then go and rip the coat she is wearing off her very shoulders. Those fur coats were not only the one thing Cruella loved most in the world, they were also her financial security. In destroying the coats, the dogs also plunge her into financial destitution. But after justice has been served, Pongo's owners wind up purchasing Corella's country estate, Hell Hall, and they remodel it to its former days of beauty. All 101 dogs live out their days happily at this new home, this Dalmatian plantation, as Disney called it totally redeemed from its former purpose of cruelty and death. It's such a fitting close to this story of family love conquering evil. This could be read by young independent readers, and it's appropriate for all ages. And lastly, my final pick is the delightful little book titled The Rescuers by Marjorie Sharp. This is another much lesser-known story, originally published in 1959, with the Disney production released in 1977. By that time, Walt Disney had passed away, and I think that was obvious in this movie, because very little of the charm and simplicity from the book is manifested in the film. The plot revolves around a group of mice called the Prisoner Aid Society. These mice live in prisons, And while they do occasionally seek to help wrongly imprisoned inmates escape, their primary job is to provide companionship and sympathy to the prisoners. They volunteer to go into the depressing darkness of jail cells 
to sit with the captives and share their bread, eating the scattered crumbs. It is a touching endeavor, and one that certainly resounds with Christianity. In this particular adventure, however, the call goes out for an escape attempt for a young Norwegian poet imprisoned in the highest security prison in all of Europe, the Black Castle. The reader is never told of what crimes the inmate is accused of, but the mice are convinced that his being a poet is proof of his innocence. I don't have time to go into all the details, but the rescue team is ultimately comprised of a humble, shy mouse named Bernard, a pampered and cultured domesticated mouse named Miss Bianca, and a rough Norwegian sailor mouse called Niles, or Nils, I'm not sure which. Each one of these characters displays specific virtues, both through boredom and under pressure. But it is Miss Bianca who I was particularly taken with as being the quintessential essence of femininity at its best. For much of the story, the three mice are simply living in the Black Castle, waiting for an opportunity to make contact with the poet. It is an incredibly dirty, depressing place, but Miss Bianca immediately sets to turning a hole into a home. She is incredibly resourceful, repurposing gum wrappers from the trash as wallpaper, discarded postage stamps as wall art, and even creates faux flower arrangements out of dried bits of cheese. She is gracious to all and uses her gift of wit and conversational charm to help the prison break efforts. In one instance, she positively saves the lives of the two male mice, not through brute force, but rather feminine wiles and quick thinking. Even while fighting forces of evil, she remains a lady in every sense. Don't fear, however, this is no girl power manifesto. The male mice are just as heroic, and they in turn save Miss Bianca from the literal jaws of death, too. This is a slower adventure story, and it would be ideal for young, independent readers or a family read aloud. All right, guys, that is all I have for you this week. I have gone way over, uh, so I will see you next time, and until then, happy reading. <laughs>